it's not wrong to have feelings and there's no there's nothing bad about feeling shame or guilt but we have to speed up the recovery cycle this is apoplectic a new podcast from the f-bomb breakfast club I'm Megan McNally, and every week I'm gathering a group of badass women around this table to talk about what's happening in business, technology, and honestly, anything else that we decide to talk about. Let's get started. Shit. <laughs> I guess we're going to have a lot of those. Oops. Welcome back to Apoplectic. This is episode two, and I'm still Megan. A few weeks ago, my friend and fellow F-bomber Aparna Ray shared an article on Facebook called How White People Conquered the Nonprofit Industry by Anastasia Risa Tompkin. It stopped me in my tracks. I spent two decades as a nonprofit organizational and sector leader and even today, many of my clients are nonprofits and foundations. From my own experience, I know her thesis is right. And ever since, I've been thinking about what it will really take to transfer power to people from the communities that nonprofits exist to serve. It's not unique to the nonprofit sector, of course, this question of what will it take to hand over power. In the business world, we talk a big game about wanting to elevate and center women of color in leadership, for example. But what action are we really willing to put behind our words? That's what we're talking about today, and I'm joined by Aparna. Aparna Ray is the founder of Moving Beyond and co-founder of Future for Us. She works across public and private sectors at the intersection of DEI and program strategy, evaluation, and organizational design. Aparna serves as an advisor to a number of startups, faculty at the Washington State Bar Association, and is a regular contributor to publications focused on diversity and inclusion in workforce development. Having lived and worked in six countries, she brings a diversity lens to all her work. She was named one of Seattle Magazine's most influential people of 2019 and has been featured in the Seattle Times, Forbes, and Seattle Business Magazine. Um, and like I shared in episode one, my interview with Aparna is one I recorded before realizing my microphone was fried, so I sound sizzly, but Aparna is clear as day. Thanks for rolling with it. Aparna, thanks so much for joining me for this conversation. Hello. Hi, Megan. Thanks for inviting me. You and I have both been in professional conversations, I think lately, where white people, but namely white women in leadership, are saying things like, I want to help women of color get ahead, but I'm worried about my own career trajectory. I've worked so hard to get where I am. Um, I'm curious, Aparna, how does that make you feel? when you hear that? Yeah, the first thing that I think of when I hear that is this, this false um, dichotomy of 
you know, supporting people of color and women of color specifically will somehow slow down your career. And the second thing that I think about is, you know, for so many white women working in nonprofits that are serving largely communities of color, I wonder, you know, what responsibility they have in their leadership to step back um, and promote the leadership and really like lean on the lived experiences of communities of color to make decisions. So I don't know, I mean, more than anything else, like I, I just wonder what it would mean for white women in leadership roles to have a more expansive view and think about what it means to have a bigger table where, you know, other voices could be a part of getting ahead. I really appreciate that you mentioned, you know, having an expansive view and thinking about a bigger table. But let me be really honest with something that worries me. Um, I, you know, personally, I love the idea that we can always build a longer table. We can always add more chairs. We've all seen the inspiring meme that gets circulated every now and again around Instagram, around Facebook. Um, but I fear that this is a meme designed to make me as a white woman feel okay about staying in leadership when really it might be time for me to get out of the way. I want to know, are there really an infinite number of chairs to pull up to the table, particularly when it comes to organizational leadership? Well, I think theoretically, you know, there is enough light to shine on everybody. But when it comes down to when it comes down to the tactical, you're right. Like there are not an infinite number of chairs. You know, most organizations have a limited number of leadership roles. Most number most organizations also have a limited number of board seats. And so I do think that we we have to move from a place of a um, equating leadership to a title. Um, I find it really, really challenging that when people talk about leadership, often what they're referencing is a title and not a habit or not a set of behaviors. And so I think what is infinite is that many people, and in fact, anybody can embody values and behaviors that make them really phenomenal leaders. Um, and when it comes down to who has the title, yeah, I do think it's time for a lot of white leaders to step down from having those titles and create organizations where there's equal opportunity for people of color and women of color in particular to move into the roles of, you know, the executive director or the board chair. Yeah, I, um, you know, as a lawyer, I'm a lawyer, and one of the things, I'm a business lawyer, so I spend a lot of time um, on governance issues with organizations, and one thing that for me I think is just so important is that it's more than title, it is actually authority. Um, so, you know, the, the position that you hold in an organization designates what kind of authority you have to act on behalf of that organization and thus on behalf of the people that that organization serves. So I do worry, it kind of, you know, for me, I, I do still kind of worry that 
um, we're all wanting it like we're wanting so badly to feel okay <laughs> to like feel good in this that we sometimes create these opportunities for leadership that aren't really authority it's not really giving power over particularly to people of color um, or to the communities that the organization exists to serve and so I, I do worry about this idea that like we can give you know we can recognize leadership in other ways yes and if we aren't really giving over the positions of authority, the decision-making positions, are we really creating anything that's different? Oh, oh, this is so hard. You know, so like, as I'm hearing you speak, I'm thinking about a client that I had um, last year where a woman of color moved into a, a board, chair role in a mostly white organization and i think over the past year i've really watched this tension between you know her having her having the title but not having the authority and all of the ways in which the white culture in that organization is suppressing her ability to shift not only the culture of the organization but make them more financially viable in the, in the long run and so I think you're you're right in noticing that like titles um, don't always lead to authority, and I think for me it's all about culture change, you know, um, and and the really hard work of reforming our organizational culture. And I and I do think that we're going to go through this period, like in a, in a transition moment, when a person of color comes into a leadership role, the work that has to happen with their peers um, in having power with and not power over that person. Mm -hmm. You know, what it means for some of their white peers to give them access to networks, to amplify their voices, to make serious investments in shifting the culture of the organization, you know, and making sure that all of their white peers are leveraging their own power to uplift those few people of color who have come into the leadership roles, you know? And so ultimately, the question that I find myself asking a lot of my clients and a lot of my peers as well is like, what sacrifices have you made for the benefit of people of color around you? And since knowing you, how have their lives changed? Um, are their lives better? Are they feeling empowered to move organizations in the direction of creating greater, more sustainable impact? Or are these people of color living through all versions of secondary trauma um, because of you? You know, and so like when you look in the mirror, like are you changing people's lives or are you making them harder? Um. I am at a, a brief loss for words <laughs> because I want to say, you know, every, I have this experience, a partner where I think every time you and I have a conversation about these issues, I end up having this, this sort of moment of self-reflection that's a bit like a sucker punch, a needed sucker punch, but, but definitely a sucker punch. Um, when you talk about power with, not power over, one of the first things I think about are how I have held leadership positions 
um, before really understanding what that means to have power with instead of power over. Um, and so, you know, if I reflect backwards on my own career trajectory and ask like, have I created trauma <laughs> for, um, particularly for people of color, women of color in particular, who um, have worked um, with me, right? So at different times where I have actually probably treated them as if they worked for me instead of worked with me. And what did, what did that do? Um, that was just another one of those moments where I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> this, is, this is such an important conversation to have and something we need to be explicit about when we are preparing people for leadership and advancing people for leadership. It can't just be based on what have your professional accomplishments been. It also needs to be based on whether or not people have the, the tools and have had opportunity to really develop practice around sharing power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I, I think about that like gets in the way of, of sharing power, and this has been not just my experience as a brown woman who spent about a decade working in the social sector um, and specifically in the nonprofit sector, but I think I, I see this with so many Black, Indigenous, Latinx women um, and other women of color, where in the sector, white women specifically will make being nice or being polite somehow a measure of your impact. Um, and I, I experience this so often with white women leaders. And, you know, of course, living in a place like Seattle, some of those habits are really exacerbated because of our, you know, Pacific Northwest cultures around communication. But there's this idea that if you're nice and polite, then you're somehow doing the right thing or you're, you know, you're having great impact. And both consciously and unconsciously, you are putting down um, women of color who might be more direct, who might be more assertive, um, but you're especially putting down women of color who are challenging your ideas around what is ultimately impactful for communities of color, which you, by the way, have little to no experience with. And, you know, and in doing that, like, we're not actually pushing ourselves to innovate. We're not actually pushing ourselves to do better. Um, for most organizations, you know, if there were to be an evaluation of the progress you've made or the ways in which you've, you know, substantively changed lives, we would probably notice that the, the work of the organization hasn't actually meaningfully changed the lives of the people around them. And like, that's the thing that like worries me. That's the thing that I find really frustrating is that time and again, you know, we, put the emphasis on being polite. We don't put the emphasis on being innovators. We don't put the emphasis on challenging the status quo. And so now we have a legacy of a sector that's really polite, but that's not really changing the world. Mm. Yep. Um, and I think it's not just about, um, you know, when you say like we're measuring people on whether they've been nice, we're measuring organizations and sectors on whether you know or not they've been nice and not on whether they've 
been innovative and challenged the status quo, I would go even further and say we have penalized people who have challenged the status quo. 100%. And I have, I'm sure I have done that. I, you know, if I look back on my career, I'm sure I have done that. Even if I wasn't consciously aware of it at the time, um, the I, threatening, right? To people in power to be challenged. Um, and so that seems to me another area of, of leadership development that's really been missing. Like how to take, um, you know, how to respond when the challenge, when the status quo was being challenged, like how to hear that and what to do with that as a leader and how to recognize what it's causing in us and what kinds of behaviors it might um, trigger for us when it happens. Yeah. Um, I often say that I, so I've, I've heard lawyers and I've heard management consultants use this, this term. They'll say, I'm a recovering attorney. <laughs> Or I'm a recovering nonprofit. So I, I'll say like, I'm a recovering nonprofit worker for all of those reasons. You know, it's like, I chose that line of work because as an immigrant, um, as a person of color, I so desperately wanted to do work that would change the lives specifically of other young people um, and create opportunities for young people and I ended up leaving that line of like direct service, direct work about five years ago because the organizations that I was working with and for were more interested in holding on to power, were more interested in, you know, I would say ultimately their egos and much less interested in changing the lives of young people. Mm. Oh, so much to unpack there um, for me as a recovering Catholic, <laughs> a recovering nonprofit leader, recovering lawyer, all of the above, right? I am, I am all of those things. Maybe if there's one thing to take from that, well, there's many things to take from that, but one thing certainly is that um, recovery is a lifelong process and hopefully we spend you know all of our time recovering and healing from um you know both the roles that we've played causing harm um but also um being um victims of that harm um you know throughout throughout our our lives so, so you mentioned your time in the nonprofit sector and recently you shared something on social media that didn't just resonate for me really stopped me in my tracks um, it was the, the article, How White People Conquered the Nonprofit Industry. I'm 50 um, at the time that we're recording this. I'm 50 years old. And I've spent more than half of my life in and of service to the nonprofit and philanthropic sectors. So for me, that's been a variety of roles. I've worked in organizations, um, you know, on in sort of frontline roles, but also quickly into leadership roles um, in nonprofit organizations. I have been a consultant for years. Um, to nonprofits um, of all kinds, um, foundations, associations, um, public charities. Um, I and have been a lawyer to those organizations over the years. Um, and for years, I was a, a teacher in the nonprofit sector. So I taught for years at the University of Washington, aspiring leaders how to rise into positions of organizational leadership. Um, 
time, now this was more than a decade ago, in fact, 15 years ago when I started teaching. Um, at that time, I believe, I really thought that we had good tools for creating equity in the classroom, but it never dawned on me. Um, and I never really thought about, and, and now when I read that article, I think actually, I really did a grave injustice by sending hordes of well-intentioned, most white folk into the sector um, without ever equipping them, you know, with the tools for an anti-racist framework for planning their own careers. I helped build an expectation that because of your good intentions, if you make these choices and do these things, you can go out there and become executive directors. You can take over the leadership of these organizations. Um, and now, you know, 15 years later, now we look at this data and look at the sector. And I played a role in that harm. I, so this is something that I'm, you know, sitting with and reflecting on. Um, and having conversations that I hope can lead me to a place of, of figuring out what does it look like to correct that harm. I am curious from your perspective, if you think it's too late to an, apply an anti-racist framework to leadership development. In other words, when you look at the state of the sector now, are things so bad that we are past the point of no return and need to blow things up and start all over? Oh, I have such mixed feelings on the idea of blowing things up and starting all over because we know that ultimately, you know, like legacy institutions will continue to live on. Um, the United Ways, the neighborhood houses, um, they're going to live on, you know, and, and when, when we step into this idea of blowing things up, I think the organizations that suffer the most are the grassroots organizations. And we, we already know that they're suffering. So I'm personally a fence sitter on this idea of like blowing things up and starting again. But I'll tell you what I'm doing personally and what I'm encouraging others to do is to ask for accountability and for that accountability to be really, really, really specific. So I'm personally no longer supporting financially or with like pro bono consulting or in any way, shape or form. I'm no longer supporting white led nonprofit organizations who do not have a public plan, a public strategic plan to shift and bring more leaders of color into their organizations or a public plan for promoting internally and doing the hard work of training their staff to move up into leadership organizations. And what that's allowed me to do, one, is put my money um, and my time, frankly, with organizations that I think are doing the right thing. But also, like, it encourages a conversation when somebody comes to me and says, hey, I would love for you to make a significant gift this year at my organization. I can say, I'd love to have that conversation with you, but I'm really curious to know what you're doing to make sure that your leadership and your board represents the communities that you are serving. Um, and there are organizations who've said, great, like I'm not interested in your money and I'm not interested in having this conversation. And there are others that'll say, yeah, absolutely. Like I, I never thought about this and I'm going to, I'm going to come back to you with an answer. And so I think, you know, my gifts are going to be fairly small, but 
if we can push the sector into having conversations and I think for donors in particular to ask for accountability, we have a chance to shift things. We don't have to, we don't have to garbage it. I think, you know, it's so important to think about the role that money plays in all of this and the power that money has. In my experience, um, with many of the organizations that I've worked with over the years, there just hasn't been urgency around this. It's more like it's been a nice to do, right? Like it would be a nice thing to do, you know, for our organization to better reflect the community it serves. But we've got more urgent things in front of us. Often those, the things that we think are urgent are tied to money. Um, which is often tied to um, um, foundation funding and grant-making organizations, private grant-making organizations, right, often drive what are our priorities and what things become the most urgent for us. Um, so money can create urgency. And if, to me, this is one place where, you know, you say your, your gift might be small or the amount of financial support you um, provide to an organization might seem small, but collectively, a whole lot of donors saying, hold on, <laughs> you know, um, our gift is no longer going to come so easily until we see these things. So kind of a donor list of sort of demands around racial equity, I actually think could create some change um, with, um, with some organizations, right, and could create some urgency um, around solving this, at least at some organizations in some communities, if not if not the sector as a whole? Well, I have a couple of thoughts. You know, one, like equity is not a self-improvement endeavor. And, you know, doing anti-racist work, doing racial equity work in your organization, you're not doing it because it should make you feel better. It shouldn't necessarily even be uh, a line item on your, you know, grant application. Um, I think what I would love for leaders in nonprofit organizations to really like wrap their brains around is equity and racial equity in particular is critical to your impact goals. Mm. You are not going to make change that's positive, that's sustainable, that's long lasting without that racial equity lens. And by the way, like most of the grant making organizations um, are not doing racial equity work. You know, I think that we live in kind of a screwed up vicious philanthropic cycle where um, we're never having really honest conversations about A, the power of money, and two, where that money comes from. Um, you know, most foundation dollars, especially like private philanthropy, there is some individual person that made huge profits by disenfranchising and taking advantage of other people, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's old money, like I think the Rockefeller money, or it's new money, um, which like living in Seattle, like we have plenty of visibility into. Um, I think that it has to be a dialogue between organizations and their funders. And I think mutually they have to agree um, that racial equity 
is critical to meet, meeting their impact goals, you know? And so I'm saying like, on one hand, I'm saying, um, I don't want to give my money to organizations that are not serious about racial equity and that don't have really firm commitments and goals in place to change what their organizations look like demographically. But at the same time, I would also say that nonprofit organizations should not take money from individuals that don't have that commitment, you know? And I think Megan, in like the business world and in the startup community, we, we talk a lot about the kind of money we want to take, right? Mm -hmm. We talk a lot about what it signals when we bring certain kinds of VCs on as investors or even like what kinds of individual investors we want in our companies. And that's certainly something that I think about as um, an entrepreneur, you know, who am I taking money from and what does it signal? And I think that we need that dialogue to be happening in the nonprofit uh, world as well. I agree. And I think, you know, it has happened at times um, in the nonprofit sector. One big difference, of course, being in the business world, if you're taking money from an investor, they actually own a piece of your organization. So there's, you know, so they actually become a shareholder. They actually have ownership in it. Um, and in the nonprofit sector, of course, nobody owns a nonprofit organization, right? But, so you is, that have really but is that really true? Because, I mean, is it also not true that organizations bend themselves backwards to meet the demands of a program officer at a foundation and whatever their strategy calls for or whatever their portfolio thesis calls for? 100%. And that's kind of what I was going to say is we have this, because of that difference, right, because legally our donors don't become owners, we sort of make these justifications that allow us to take money that we probably shouldn't take. Um, but they're absolutely, the money is influence. So just like I was saying before, like when it comes to grant making, right? Grant making often drives the priorities of organizations instead of supporting um, the organization and letting the organization and the community that it represents lead, often the funding leads the organization. And so while it might not be ownership, effectively it's the same, right? Or, or nearly the same. And I was, you know, I was going to say there've been a few times I can reflect on um, in, in my, um, you know, 25 years plus in the nonprofit sector where those questions have come up. So one example that I can think of would be the tobacco industry. Mm. Um, when the, you know, in the, in the early aughts, <laughs> when the, the tobacco industry, after losing significant ground politically and being held accountable financially for the harm it had caused for decades, um, a lot of money was poured into rebranding tobacco companies. Um, and, in, and, and they started having these lofty names like Altria. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. um, and companies like Altria started providing funding to things like domestic violence. Mm -hmm. and taking really powerful stands against domestic violence. Um, and organizations that, um, that are, you know, working with survivors of, of domestic violence and working to change the policy landscape that could better protect um, survivors and hold perpetrators of domestic violence accountable, um, we're, you know, we're taking this money, but then 
started to really ask questions like, should we? <laughs> the communities yeah. that we serve have been harmed by tobacco in such a profound way. Should we be taking this money? And so there have been times when there have been some one-off conversations like that. I can think of similar instances in the environmental um, uh, movement where you know conservation organizations started to be taken to task for accepting money from um, big oil, for example. Yeah. Just some fits and starts there, but, I, but, but there hasn't been um, a, a truly sort of a, a wide-scale reckoning <laughs> across the sector of how big of a role we have allowed money and donors to play in shaping the priorities of the work. Um, of, of organizations and particularly of community-based organizations. Um, I'm still hungry for that. Well, you know, so I think that in the environmental space, greenwashing is, is huge, right? Um, and ultimately, it's about feeling good, but it's also about those tax write-offs. Like, we don't really talk about that very often. You know, like, why are... Um, billionaires creating private philanthropies, you know, some of it's to feel good, but some of it's also to do, you know, I think Anand Giridhar Das calls it impact washing or greenwashing in the environmental space. For instance, like if you have a um, oil and gas billionaire and they set up a charity that's now investing in renewables, where I think like ultimately they would have greater impact just by divesting from their oil and gas portfolios you know and we don't we don't really want to have those conversations i think that we're terrified to have those conversations but like going back to this tobacco analogy like what i think is really interesting is at some point um we shifted our society from accepting tobacco and from making it totally normal for people to smoke indoors for people to smoke inside hospitals to creating a public image where smoking itself is kind of frowned upon you know and so now i think in 2020 we live in a world where smoking is pretty frowned upon. Like it's not normalized. You're not allowed to do it indoors. You're not allowed to do it within, I don't know, 20 or 50 feet of schools and hospitals. Um, but what did the tobacco industry do when it was pushed out of the United States and when it was pushed out of the global North? They went and set up shop in the global South and have created you know, the same patterns of addiction um, and there are like, you know, three-year-olds in Philippines that are addicted to nicotine. Mm. You know, the other thing that they did in their like rebranding and their like image um, shift is we've made smoking cigarettes bad, but we have created a culture where vaping is okay. So if you're holding some, you know, like flashy, cool device and taking nicotine in that's like scented or flavored, that's okay. You know what I mean? And I think that there are some really interesting parallels with philanthropy is like this huge shift to go out and, and attempt to change the lives of people somewhere else because you're not allowed to do it in your backyard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Aparna, I could talk to you forever <laughs> about this. 
about the nonprofit sector in particular and about philanthropy and the challenges of money and the role it plays and the work that is um, necessary and needs to be done to rethink leadership and power and how we share power and shift power um, in the sector. I wanna thank you so much um, for giving me a Sunday morning <laughs> to have this conversation. No, thanks for inviting me to have that. Do we wanna leave folks with a couple of tips to do better? Yeah, let's give a, we need to um, give it a bit of a pause. So we're gonna pause for just a second. So Aparna, should we leave people with um, some tips or some ideas or um, uh, actions that people can take? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, honestly, as a former educator, I'm a firm believer that we can start to shift how we work. I, I, I'm a firm believer that we have the capacity as human beings to take in new information that disagrees with our old information or, our, you know, our current mental models and, and, and sincerely show up um, different. So I think a couple of tips that I have, a lot of people that are probably listening to your podcast are already reading. Some of them are probably out protesting. They might've put a statement up publicly, but I think that, you know, beyond learning, there is, you know, a need to take really decisive action. So I have a couple of tips um, and they're not going to be easy, but I think that they're really, really important. You know, one is like, if you are a white person in a leadership role in a nonprofit, especially if you're a white woman, extend your power to the people of color around you, bring their ideas to the board meetings, bring their ideas with credit to your internal leadership meetings. The second is make your network accessible to people of color. And what that looks like is take that really smart woman of color in your organization to your board meetings and let them present. Let your, you know, lead on your diversity and inclusion committee, come to your leadership meeting and present and give them the credit, you know, but also like as leaders, we have so much access via social media and LinkedIn to promote the leadership of folks around us. And so um, do that, promote folks. Um, I would say another way of promoting folks is that if you are the leader of a small or mid-sized nonprofit organization and you have some smart people of color working for you that are not going to grow within your organization, then help them get jobs in other organizations where they have an opportunity to move up. And that is a really concrete way to invest in people of color, but specifically women of color. Do not let them stagnate in your organization. And the third thing that I would do as a leader, if I was a white leader, is start having those conversations with your program officers and foundations, with your individual donors. Um, the Girl Scouts a couple of years ago turned down a six-figure gift 
from a donor whose values did not align with their values around anti-racism. And, you know, that says to me as a donor that you are aligning your actions with your stated values. And so more than anything else, live into your stated values. Most organizations have really, really powerful value statements. And so ask yourself, what are the actions that align to these? So those are three tips. Um, and in the meantime, I would say, don't stop learning. Don't stop listening to podcasts or reading books. Do all of those things because what you're committing to is not like a one-time professional development activity for which you want to get a gold star, but you're committing to like a life lifetime of unlearning some really bad habits and behaviors. So make time on a regular basis to invest in your continuing education. Thank you. I love how specific those were. And if I could add to them, you know, in particular, when you say this is a, you know, this is a lifelong undoing and a lifelong learning is that for many of us, I can say it as a white woman, you know, for many of us, we have this moment on this journey where you have, um, you know, where a particular reflection causes you to understand a particular harm you did, just like you and I had in this conversation today, right? So there have been moments where all of a sudden I'm like, oh, fuck, I did that. That was me. I caused harm that I hadn't realized before. Um, and when that happens, we have this tendency then to just go into this, this shame spiral that is not productive. <laughs> and so it, like it's okay, I believe it is okay to feel bad, um, to feel very real discomfort and anxiety and um, grief when we recognize that we've done harm, but we have to move out of that um, or you know, while we're feeling that, also continue to move into action. And I would love to see more um, in the, I think this is actually not unique to the nonprofit sector. This is true in the, the corporate world, although there are different gender dynamics at play, I think, in the corporate world at times than there are in the nonprofit sector. But for white women who are in the chief executive roles of organizations, now is a really good time to revisit succession planning um, through a lens of racial equity and not to do that alone because we aren't equipped to if this is not our area of expertise, right? Now is a really good time. For years, this is another place where philanthropy kind of drove this as a priority. And for years, um, private philanthropy was driving an emphasis on succession planning and giving money to organizations to develop succession plans. That, that often ended up looking like executive directors grooming the, you know, the COO or the deputy director who worked beneath them and looked an awful lot like them, just preparing them to take over someday. And I think it's time to really revisit those and to revisit them with experts who can help us apply um, a racial equity lens to that and actually you know, more than just a racial equity lens, but really asking is the succession plan that we have built leading this organization to being an anti-racist organization? And if it's not, then how do, we, how do we rethink what succession planning looks like here? So there's a lot of work to be done and we can't do it alone and we have to continue the conversation and continue to act even 
even while we're wrestling with personal feelings of um, of guilt. Yeah, well, one of the things that my business partner says is that it's not wrong to have feelings and there's no, there's nothing bad about feeling shame or guilt, but we have to speed up the recovery cycle. We can't sit on that feeling of shame or guilt for days, weeks, months. I think for some leaders, years, we, we have to recover quickly and move into action. Just like, you know, the first time you drop a bowl or a mug and it breaks, it feels really heartbreaking. But I think as we get older, we're constantly breaking dishes and you don't sit for weeks and stare at those broken pieces on your kitchen floor. You pick them up and you sweep the floor and you move on with your day and maybe you broke something that was really dear to you, but ultimately, like we are learning to move on quickly. Um, and I think that I would offer that analogy to leaders as well as like recover fast, learn how to recover fast so that you're not stuck for weeks while you're you know, in a cycle of causing harm. But more than the harm, you're also not creating impact, you know, so ground yourself in that. I love that. Those are fantastic words to end on. Recover faster, ground ourselves in impact. Thank you. Thanks, Megan. Thanks for joining us for episode two. I hope that you're walking away with not just some inspiration and insights, but also some action that you can take immediately in your own organization. You can learn more about Aparna and Moving Beyond on her website at movingbeyond.co. And you can learn more about FBOMB at our website, fbombbreakfastclub.com. Engage with us on social at fbombbclub and find us on Facebook at Get Up and Swear. Thanks. We'll see you next time.